Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It's the basis of the sermon at First Free Methodist Church on Sunday, November 6, 2022. This is the third message in a series called The Abundance Dilemma, as we explore uh, the possibilities of generosity, stewardship, and gratitude. In this particular passage in Ephesians 1, we we turn to a rich text where the, the writer of the letter to the Ephesians is speaking about how he holds this Ephesian community in such high regard, and they're a part of uh, that person's prayer life as they lift up this community in Ephesus. When the, the, the passage that we are reading today opens in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, we read these words, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers. In these two verses, we really see a cycle of faith and love come into focus. You know, the letter of Ephesians is commonly attributed to the Apostle Paul. And of course, it's certainly influenced by Paul's theology and thought. There are quite a few reasons to argue for and against the Pauline authorship of the letter to the Ephesians, but those are really not at the the heart of our conversation today. But consider it enough to affirm that Paul's theology is woven in and through what is here. One of the reasons why there's a speculation that Paul is uh, more than likely perhaps not the author of this particular letter is in those two verses I just read a moment ago, that there almost seems to be an unfamiliarity with the writer and the Ephesian community. And if we pick up the book of Acts, we can find that Paul stayed with the Ephesians for three years. So when we read this letter to the Ephesians, and it acknowledges not really having in-person familiarity with them. It's hard to reconcile that with what we know about Paul. So there are many scholars that do believe that this particular writing was written perhaps to the Ephesians after Paul by one of Paul's own disciples or learners. But this even could be a letter that was to be circulated much more broadly and widely throughout many of those churches in Asia Minor, uh, where Ephesians, uh, the Ephesus is located, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey. When we look at what's written here, rather than who wrote what's written here, we can read in verse 15 that the writer says that he has heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and the love for all saints. And this is where Paul's theology is certainly influencing what's written here. This faith that exists among you, it's the foundation of this uh, engagement of life, that there is a faith that exists within this community that's focused in Jesus Christ. But the faith among them isn't the only hallmark of who these people are in Christ. It says faith exists among you, but also it, the writer talks about this love they have for all the saints and how that love is expressed. And so there's an extension of that faith. And so if we were to kind of put this together in slightly different words, we could say that this is faith working in love. 
which is, well, quintessentially a, a Pauline piece of theology here, that faith has its extension in love. And so when we read in verse 15, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for the saints, we can see how these two ideas are, are linked. There's an inner working, the faith exists among you, and an outer working, which is the love for all the saints. This dynamic of faith and love is a, a life-giving dynamic. It's foundational to what the writer of Ephesians is speaking about here. And so this results then in the writer giving thanks for them while also praying for them. We see this in verse 16. The writer says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. I want you to notice carefully how this is phrased here, that the thanks is not directed to the Ephesians for whatever love they have for the saints, however they may have expressed that love for the saints and maybe through their generosity or their giving to other Christian communities. The writer gives thanks to God, not directly to them. So there's not really an appreciation here for the Ephesian community as much as there is an affirmation for this community. Their work of faith has prompted these prayers of thanksgiving to God. And this causality cycle, or the the reason that this process exists is important, and it opens up a key passageway to us that I think we must understand about this text. That we should seek occasions to give thanks to God for others. You know, often we conflate or confuse appreciation and affirmation. And the dynamic of our life in Christ is one in which we give thanks to God for the fabric of Christian community. The life-changing of life-changing power of God at work in people's lives prompts thanksgiving to God. So our word for others is an affirmation of this, of how we give thanks to God for them. We give thanks to God for their gifts, their graces, their presence, that which they share. And so the writer is saying that by possessing this knowledge of their spiritual movement, that's the blessing. And so this is an encouragement in some ways. If we were to talk about the definition of encouragement, this is encouragement in its purest form. That the writer is saying, I give thanks to God for you and make mention of you in my prayers. How much more encouraging can it be to know that we as a group or even as individuals have had a godly influence in the lives of others and instead of them thanking us for that, they give thanks to God for that. We see now in the the next verses that follow, verses 17 and 19, the, the nature of some of the intercession. In other words, what is the person who's writing Ephesians praying about? It says, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. In verse 16, well, what is that? It begins in verse 17, where it says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that your heart may be enlightened so that you will know What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe? When we get to that phrase there in the middle of verse 19, that's where the substance of the prayer stops because then it moves in the latter part of verse 19 into this kind of great doxology or this statement about Jesus we'll talk about in a moment. 
But let's just concentrate on what the writer is praying for them. And before the writer outlines exactly what he's praying for them, he gives it a little bit of preface at the beginning of verse 17, if you saw it there, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So three things, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. These three words, wisdom, revelation, and knowledge, these are, um, for lack of better words, hot words for the Ephesian community. There are, are many scholars who believe that, that Ephesians is written to a community in Asia Minor, in Ephesus and elsewhere, that may be leaning into some early forms of what's called Gnosticism. And, and Gnosticism um, requires hours of reading and lecture to explain in full. But it's essentially this uh, notion of the rejection of the physical reality of this world and appreciating only the spiritual reality of this world. So words like wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Matter of fact, the word Gnosticism is built on the Greek word for knowledge, ginosis, or ginosko, to know. So there are some who think that there's this Gnostic influence here, but there is another influence in Ephesus and in that part of Asia Minor, uh, commonly called by scholars a form of a mystery religion. It was uh, not a religion that was uh, uh, an enigma, but rather it, it had this set of mysterious practices that they kept that were not quite Gnosticism, weren't quite paganism. They couldn't really uh, fall into one category or another in the first century. But suffice to say that these words, wisdom, revelation, knowledge, were were key words in those first century mystery religions that were occurring in and around Ephesus, but they also became significant words later in what became known as Gnosticism. These words are about the reality then, what the writer is saying is that these aren't mysterious disembodied things like wisdom, revelation, and knowledge are outside of the divine. The writer is saying these things come from God and they come from God alone. And then the writer is making this argument here about the supremacy and the power of God that there is no true wisdom apart from God. There is no revelation apart from God. There is no knowledge apart from God. Both the mystery religions and the Gnostics would acknowledge that you could experience all of these things apart from any quote-unquote divine person or influence, if you will. So the reality here that we need to hear carefully is that the writer is trying to help us understand that there's a very real sense in which God is supreme in all these things. But then we get into the heart of the prayer, and the heart of the prayer comes after naming wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. It says here that, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory and inheritance in the saints, what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. The heart of the prayer is made up of four things. The first thing, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that they would have this increased awareness and practice, that the eyes of the heart are a, an idiom, if you will. It's the, it's the vision of what we can be and what we can do. Uh, for in, in the Greek-speaking world, the heart is not... Uh, uh, just the seat of emotion. It's also the seat of will. It's the where choices about taking action are grounded. So the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you, you could begin to see the possibilities 
of how God might be moving and working in us and calling us to take action, which then helps us understand the next part of the prayer is, is this, is that to know the hope of his calling. So the eyes of the heart being enlightened give us the capacity then to see or to know the hope of his calling, God's calling for them, not their calling, God's calling, which then helps them lean into the third part of the prayer, that they might accept or know the riches of inherit his inheritance for the saints, that there's a that the persistence that they practice in living out that call is an inheritance that they experience in the present and also in the future. And then the fourth part of the prayer, the boundless greatness of God's power is, is one where there's this, how do we say, the, the, the resources or the very essence of God's power is located. In other words, that which God calls us to is not something we're called to without resources or capacity, that there's this boundless grace that God has for this boundless greatness that God has for us. Again, this is key for the Ephesian community because all of these things are grounded in God. They're not grounded in, in just in nature. They're grounded in God's very living presence in their midst. And so the heart of this prayer is really about helping the Ephesian community understand how they're being prayed for they're being prayed for not to do a specific thing or to take a specific action, but they're being prayed for to continue to have an understanding that it's God who calls them. It's God who calls them and God who equips them, God who gives them inheritance, God who is a God of power and gives them all the capacities they need. This opens up a key passageway to us then. That intercession, in other words, the act of praying for others, is beyond the situations of life. So often when we think of intercession, we think in terms of alleviation or solution. So if we have someone we know who is uh, in a particular uh, difficult situation and we intercede for them, oftentimes we pray that the difficult situation they're in will be alleviated. If they're facing a particular problem, that the problem would go away. Intercession and even prayer itself is really more about union with God and communion with God. It, in some ways, when we think of God as this alleviation and solution, that prayer is about trying to just fix stuff, it's the difference between inviting God to function as a cosmic bellhop, like, you know, ring the bell, God, will you do this thing for me, versus understanding God as a divine healer and initiator. When we read this prayer in Ephesians, this beautiful prayer in Ephesians 1 that the writer is offering up for the Ephesian community, we don't, we don't read about any kind of alleviation from some kind of suffering. We don't read about asking God to do X or Y. Really, it's about how the Ephesian community can move into deeper communion and union with God. I would suggest that something we need to think about more often is this. That prayer does not change situations or things as much as its purpose is to change people. Remember, we're incarnational. We believe that God works and moves in human flesh. And so often when we pray, we pray for God to do things outside of human agency. 
when in fact what we read in Scripture again and again and again is for God to actually take on human agency, that God seeks a people conformed to his will and purpose, this unity of mind and heart between us and God. So in this sense, prayer is not as much, not as much about self-awareness as it is God-awareness. It's, and sometimes we pray as if we want God to do something without us. And in many cases, God is looking to do something in us and with us. The writer now concludes with this reason for this great confidence. You know, as we read in the middle of verse 18, it's verse 19, it says, then the prayer for the Ephesian community is that they would know the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. Why? Why is there that level of confidence? Why is there that level of acknowledgement of God's greatness? Well, it comes in these closing verses in verses 20 to 23, that these truths about prayer are fully revealed here, that that we can have a confidence of God's life-transforming power instead of situational transformation. Listen to the the characteristics the writer lifts up uh, in verse 19 and onward. It says that they would know the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then the last part of verse 19, these are in accordance, in other words, in agreement with the working of the strength of his might. Oh, so God has done this before. Verse 20, which he has brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things into subjection under his feet and made him the head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is a doxological statement. So the writer points to the reason why uh, he has so much confidence in God's fulfilling action of prayer for the Ephesians because it's grounded in what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Look at this list that there's been this working of God's might. They raised Christ from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, far above all dominion and power. And even that statement there is so important in this Roman world in which Ephesians is written because when people would think of dominion and power, they would think in a, in a, uh, a political sense about Rome, and especially in Ephesus, they would think in a religious or a cultic sense about the, the god Artemis and the, that god's power over all things. The prayer goes on that, that that power would be experienced now and in the age to come, that everything has already been put under the feet of Jesus, who is the head of the church. And this notion of the head of the church is going to come back later in Ephesians 5 uh, when uh, the writer talks about some domestic relationships in the home and what head means. And uh, it's a rich text. This is all largely doxological. In other words, these are glorifying statements about God. But it establishes the confidence the writer has in this intercession. But take note. In the, the, the latter part of verse 19 through the rest of this passage, that there's a tension here. There's a tension between uh, what Christ and who Christ has become and how that influences us in the present. So there's this tension between what theologians call the realized eschatology, and eschatology is the study in the Bible of the last things, that much of the power of those last things has leaked into the present 
but still yet it's held in the future. So the text is describing a reality that is, Christ is raised from the dead, is seated at the right hand of God, has dominion and power, now in the age to come, everything already under his feet. That, that, that's true, but it's also true that it'll be fully realized in the future. So there's a tension here between now and then, what is and what will be. And that opens up a key passageway for us as we conclude. That the presence of the future changes our present. One of my favorite books I read early, early on in my Christian experience was written by George Eldon Ladd called The Presence of the Future, and it was a book about eschatology. And Dr. Ladd coined that phrase, the presence of the future, as a part of the name of that book because he was trying to lift up this notion of the tension that's held between the, the reality of Christ's presence in eternity at the end of all things, but how that power is also realized in us today. So if what God has done for us in Jesus is true, our approach to prayer and all of life shifts. So let me give you an example. Do we ask in prayer for God to forgive us, or are we actually already forgiven? So perhaps better, instead of asking God to forgive us, what we read in Scripture is that we're to confess our sin. Thus, we agree with what God has already done for us. That forgiveness is always present to us, but it's not always realized by us. God has done the forgiving work in Jesus' death on the cross and in his resurrection. But we still yet have to come to a place of accepting that work for ourselves. And so what we commonly confuse as God forgiving us is actually more our confession to God in which we put our hearts and our minds, our spirits in alignment with God. Prayer, thanksgiving, even generosity invite us in this sense to step out of linear time. Past, present, future, it all intersects in prayer and in the spirit. So our lives form this new kind of dependence on God. So that we recognize that God is already in it. God has already done the heavy lifting. What's at stake here is whether or not we're going to live in the reality of that presence. If we're going to live in a way as if that work has been already done for us. And holding on to a reality check of our finiteness. That as much as God has done so much for us and filled us with power, God is still God. We are still human, and the need for us to remain in that understanding in our interaction with God is all the more important in these very challenging days in which we live. The goal of the Christian life is not self-awareness or self-actualization. The goal of the Christian life is union with a God who is cosmically and eternally everywhere, in all places, in all things, and with even all people. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear them. You can visit my website, revcraig.com, click on news on the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see a drop-down menu that says podcasts. Click on this episode and leave a comment. I also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, and learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.